0: The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org.
1: Scripture reading this morning is excuse me, Matthew 2, 1-12. through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise man from the east came to Jerusalem, saying,
0: Father, we again just lift up our praises uh, to you. I I praise you for the story of your son's uh, first advent. I pray that you would help us as we just dig into the text of Matthew chapter 2, that uh, you would uh, just help us to see the beauty of your son's birth, the beauty of uh, the gospel, that you would give us hearts of compassion toward the world around us, that you would help us to learn to trust more in you. Strengthen me, Father, as just uh, your weak servant, as I I preach your word, I pray that you'd help me to preach it with uh, clarity and in truth, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Okay, start my timer. I like to run long. So... I don't know about you, but I, I find myself having so much fun getting to uh, read through the Bible on a regular basis. It's, it's not something I've, I have done faithfully all my life, but the times where I do kind of consistently get to read through the word uh, each year, I love it because I, I reread familiar stories and each time, it seems like you just kind of dig up new, new truths—something you hadn't seen before. It's um, something I was reading recently uh, regarding uh, kind of the mystery of some of the stories of the Bible. You know, as we read through the Old Testament, this is where I was studying the Pentateuch for a class I was in. Uh, you, you read through and you have questions, like, okay, what? I'm not sure exactly. What's going on here? I'm not sure, you know, where this is going. I I wish the author would have told me more details about this thing. And this author that I was reading said, you know, he thinks one of the reasons that there's some mystery and ambiguity sometimes in these stories is it so us as creatures coming before the word of God would find joy and delight in digging more into his word. You're like, I don't understand that. And, and so many times it happens to me where I might read a text and have a question like, I, I'm not sure about that. And as I continue reading through the word, it might be my next go around. But all of a sudden I connect one passage with another passage. And like, oh, I see the beauty in that. It's, it's you know, kind of tur- turning a, a diamond and seeing a different facet of it. Like it. You see the beauty kind of unfold in new ways. And this story that we come b- uh, before this morning, the, the story of the wise men, it's a very familiar story. You know, I think because we revisit the Advent every year, it, we, we get familiar with the shepherds, we get familiar with the wise men. It, it's, it's a very familiar story. We have nativity scenes with these figurines set up. Go, you know, you drive by and see lawn nativity scenes. It's, it becomes so familiar that I know for me sometimes... I overlook some of the nuances of the story. And for me, studying this passage is kind of like turning the diamond a little bit and seeing a new, a new, some new facets that I uh, hadn't really meditated on uh, before. This narrative is, is much like some of those Old Testament narratives, it leaves us asking a lot of questions. It leaves us asking, who are the wise men? Where did they come from? How did they hear about the coming Messiah? Why were they anticipating his arrival? And what, what's up with the star? <laughs> I go out, sometimes Nashville's not the greatest place for viewing stars, but I go out on my back deck, sometimes it's just dark enough, you see some stars. Uh, we got a hand-me-down telescope recently, I've been trying to show uh, you know, the moon's fun to look at because you can see more detail. It's, it's not as interesting maybe to see Jupiter and Mars, even though you look at Jupiter and all of a sudden you see the moons that you can't see with, it, with it, usually with the naked eye. But when I watch these stars, like how does a star point out a location? I, I, I don't get it. What's up with a star? Is it, uh, some people said it was maybe a comet. Um, some people have, uh, thought that maybe it was an alignment of planets. We don't really know. That's that's the deal. We don't know. There's we can kind of maybe guesstimate certain things, but we don't know. We don't know if it was a purely natural phenomena or if it was something supernatural. These are the questions that the text kind of leaves us hanging on. How does this all work out? I want to work through a little bit of those. Details just to show you some of the beauty of scripture, but then I'm going to kind of land on one focus point we'll get to in a moment. First, with the star, many, many people relate this actually back to Balaam's prophecy that we see in Numbers 24 7. Balaam, if you remember, is that Gentile prophet for hire, Balak. The king hires him to prophesy against Israel, and Balaam at least is wise enough to say, "Only what the Lord says is, is what I can is what I can prophesy over the people." We see in Scripture the wickedness of Balaam as he actually twists. They they get the people seduced into worshiping idols. But what he says, he 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 can't speak. Outside of what the word of God that uh, God has given him, and in his final oracle in Numbers twenty four seven, we read, "I see him, but not now; I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel." The picture of a scepter there is of ruling. So this this picture of a of a star rising to point to a ruler, a king, a leader. We, we see that hinted at in Numbers 24 from the mouth of this prophet who, if you remember, his, his donkey had to speak to him <laughs> to warn him about uh, the angel of the Lord about to kill him. So some beauty in the story of that. Some of the details in the story that leave question marks, we've kind of filled in with our imaginations. There's lots of lore around the story of the wise men there's a song about it we three kings of orient are there's no mention first of all, first off of how many wise men there are we sing a song about three kings uh, we have three in our nativity uh, scenes but there's no mention that there are only three we've deduced that by the number of gifts that were given, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's kind of a weak link, but, you know, we, we fill in some, uh, some details of the story with our imagination. So we have three wise men, even though we aren't given the number. And then we've promoted them to kings. You know, it's not these three wise men of orient art, or these three magi of orient art, it's these three kings. Now, I think that might be fair. It might be fair to promote the wise men to kings. We're not exactly sure. Uh, just a couple passages to look at Psalm, uh, Psalm 72. These are just some of, the, some of the things that we see in Scripture that make us think, okay, maybe, maybe they were kings. There's maybe some tradition that goes along with that. Psalm 72, verses 8 through 11 May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. We'll see throughout kind of this text. uh, And I think as we see throughout scripture in general, sometimes there's Little, little revelations that point to larger revelations. Uh, we, we know from Philippians that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that certainly involves all the rulers. I think even at his birth, we, we see this, where the kings, whether they're kings or not, come and they offer him tribute. Isaiah Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. 3. Arise shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. There you have some of the language of the, of the star and the magi coming to to worship and pay tribute. The brightness rising. What's What's cool is if you read on the, verse Six, uh, the last part of verse six, they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So the beauty of scripture pointing to Christ's birth and the circumstances around it. Now, as I said, I think it's important for us to realize and to worship and enjoy the fact that a lot of these little stories point to the grander story They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. That really brings a lot of that Isaiah 60 language all the way in to this glorious scene in heaven where all things have been made new and the nations are pouring into New Jerusalem to worship uh, our Savior. So we have three wise men. Again, we don't really know how many there are. They may have very well been kings. We're not sure. The word is magi, wise men, kings. I don't really have a problem either way there. The fun one is we've given them names. There's some tradition with this. that The, the most common names are Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. I, I looked up the lyrics to We Three Kings uh, the other day, and it actually, for the various verses, it actually says this is Balthazar's verse, you know, um, But what's funny is you look up the various traditions around the wise men's story, and depending on the region, there are some 20 different names that have been ascribed uh, to these magi. But what I want to look at this morning are some of the details we do know, some of the details in Matthew's text that I think we can camp out on and dig out some really rich truths. So what's one of the first things we know? Well, one of the first things is revealed in verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, it's important here to kind of remember Matthew's theme. And I think to look back, at, some, at what we've already covered in our Advent series so far, if you remember, Matthew began with the exciting story of the genealogy of Jesus. As as Ryan pointed out, it's kind of an odd place to start, but the language of Matthew uh, of Matthew's start of the genealogy is Genesis language. It actually uses the word. That that we get the word Genesis from says this is this is Matthew saying this is a new beginning. This is a new creation that I'm about to tell you about. As he unfolds it, we see in this genealogy uh, what stood out to us: these women that are listed; these four women: Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and as as he puts it, the wife of Uriah. We know her as uh, Bathsheba, or as my wife would say, Bathsheba, which is totally acceptable. I just had to say it for her sake. What's interesting is there's a a good argument that all four of these women were Gentiles. Some people say that's why uh, not only is the scandal of David and Bathsheba kind of put up forward by saying the wife of Uriah. But if you're thinking through your Bible texts, you're also just finished the statement, Uriah the Hittite. So there's some interesting things there. We know for sure that Rahab and Ruth uh, were Gentiles. We're pretty sure that Tamar was a Canaanite. So we have this genealogy that stands out by putting these women forward, which is very odd for a genealogy of the day. And it's very likely that they were Gentiles. But we know that these wise men are coming from the East. We know that they are Gentiles. But the term from the East, I think, also has some deep theological implications that Matthew is drawing out of his parallels or echoes with, with Genesis. Um, I've taught on this before, but just a a very brief uh, view of this, we talked about this through our Exodus series. You see in Genesis after the fall that God exiles Adam and Eve from the garden, and he, he posts his angel with a fiery sword at the east. And then we see this eastward progression as men are sinning and going further and further away from God. And then in Exodus, as we're given the picture of the tabernacle, the direction, they, can't, they couldn't just set the tabernacle up any way they wanted to. The tabernacle had to be set up so that you entered from the east going west. So you entered into the tabernacle, moving westward, and all the way into the Holy of Holies. It's this westward progression. So I don't think that Matthew uses the phrase that these wise men came from the east for nothing. It's this reminder, not only of the the importance of Gentiles in the story of the gospel, but this important picture of a westward movement to God. So they come, they had seen a star, and they go to the first logical place to get details about where this king might be. They go to Jerusalem. But listen, listen to what they say. They, they come to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They don't come saying... Where is he who is going to be born king of the Jews? They don't come saying, hey, there's, a pro- uh, there's prophecies that maybe we've got wind of, we understand that there's going to be a king. You know, where might that be? They, they are confident. They, there's presumption in their voice that they come to God's people, Israel, and they say, where is he who has been born? king of the Jews and what's sad is God's people are kind of taken back by it what 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 do you mean surely you know, you'd think for the kind of putting thoughts in the wise man's head surely as his people you're aware of these things I mean, we're, we're coming from a great distance. Many people think maybe coming from Babylon. And that's maybe how they had some of these prophecies through Daniel and the people, the people, children of Israel staying in exile in Babylon, having access to the Holy Scriptures. There's some of this thought that maybe that's where they had it. We don't really know. But they show up in Jerusalem and the people of God don't know about this birth. It's it's sad because as we think about how Matthew opens it's this genealogy that captures this picture of waiting this long wait I think this also goes to Genesis where you have the story of creation and the fall and then in Genesis 3:15 this promise the first gospel proclamation that a Messiah is going to come. And then Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel. Like, and there's this anticipation. It's like, is one of these the, the rescuer? And right away, they find out it's not Abel because he gets killed. And at the same time, they find out it's not Cain because Cain killed his brother. And then in chapter five of Genesis, we have a genealogy a list, it's it's a genealogy of Noah. And it goes on and on and on, and there's these repeated phrases. So-and-so was X number of years old and he died. Goes on and on and on. So-and-so begat so-and-so, you know, it's that, if you start reading your your, your Bible plans, you're like, what have I gotten myself into? What does this word begat mean, if you're in King James? So and so begat so and so and lived X number of years old, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And there's this long wait. And Matthew shows us that in his genealogy of Christ this long wait. But what's sad is in the long wait, I think they lost the anticipation. We wonder, as we look at it, as we see the scene of the wise men coming into Jerusalem and asking this question, taking the people off guard, we wonder if they were still looking for their Messiah at all. We wonder if they had given up hope. We see their response in verse 3. says, Herod the king heard this. He was troubled. And Matthew uses a word here that I think is supposed to grab our attention. It says, Herod was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. The wise men come, saying, he's been born. And then all the chief priests and scribes are gathered together. These people who know the scripture, who should be anticipating these things, ourselves kind of living not in anticipation. Where, where was he to be born? All of them are, are brought together. So they come together and they, good for them, look to Micah's prophecy, Micah Oh Bethlehem and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the wise men are given this information. Well, the scripture says Bethlehem. They were right. But the wise men take this information and they actually do something with it. They go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was five is five miles south of Jerusalem. I'm sure the roads and things are different now, but you pull it up in in your maps and it says it's an hour and 46 minute walk. The wise men went, but none of the chief priests and the scribes followed. How horribly sad is that? Even doubting, they didn't follow along. It's not like it was a long journey that even needed any preparation. It's maybe a two hour walk to get there. But they didn't go. the Advent devotional that we're following along with, Ferguson, uh, Sinclair Ferguson loosely puts it this way. He says, the, the religious leaders possessed the scriptures that spoke about Christ, but they lacked the desire to find him. They had the very word of God That even they knew well enough to pinpoint the location where the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, and yet they didn't get off their couches to go walk five miles down the road to Bethlehem to see if these things were so. Do you remember the language in Luke with the shepherds? They go to see if these things are so. The religious rulers didn't leave. The wise men. Matthew con- contrasts the wise men with the religious leaders with much different language. They get on their way, and in verse ten, it says they saw when they saw the star. So again, they had fought; they'd seen the star that signified to them that the king of the Jews was to be was born. And they go that way, they go to Jerusalem, find out the location, Bethlehem. They get on their way again and they see the star again. And what does it say? They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. The religious rulers sat down and stayed put. The wise men, these Gentiles, with maybe just a fraction of the scriptures that the Jewish leaders had sought out Bethlehem, sought out the Messiah. And when they saw the star that signified that they're going the right direction, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. The Jewish authorities, the Jewish religious leaders were missing out on all of this. Likely, if you remember in Luke's account with the shepherds, the shepherds go to see if these things are so, they rejoice, they worship, and they leave, and they tell everyone, what they had seen. And likely is that wise men arrive. Again, this is one of those details of the story we fill in. There might be a gap of two years by the time they arrive. We don't really know. We'll look at that next next week. But they arrive and they seek him out, probably word of mouth. They find out that this child that these shepherds had told about is in this specific house and they go and they find him. And they worship him. They show up. By all accounts, Jesus' family is not a well-off family. They're not put off by this poor Jewish family. They come in with their great riches and they are humbled in the presence of their Savior. And they fall down and worship him. And they give him their treasures says they open, open up their treasures, they open up their treasure boxes and they offer him, because it's, they don't offer Mary or Joseph, they offer him, this infant, this child, their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, are not too surprised that Herod had uh, other motives in asking the wise men to let, them, let him know about where this child was. As the story unfolds, he ends up murdering the children of Bethlehem in his e- effort to kill this king. Herod, as we know from history, did not want to share his throne with anyone. He, he, he held to it tightly. He was murderous to this uh, degree. So the wise men are warned in a dream not to return to Herod and they depart to their own country by another way. You know, when we read stories like this, it is, and I, we do this a lot in the New Testament, cause a lot of, of Jesus' preaching is directed at the religious rulers, is directed at the Pharisees. And it's so easy for us to wag our fingers at the pharisees and like oh you stupid pharisees can't you see that the messiah is right here in front of you you've seen his miracles you've seen all that he has done he fed the 4000 the 5000 he's healed the lame he's given sight to the blind he raised lazarus from the dead and yet your response when he raises lazarus is well how can we kill this man oh and lazarus too Let's kill them both. Like, what, what insanity? And we think, oh, these foolish, foolish people. But we need to read a story like this and realize as we celebrate the first advent of Christ, we are celebrating the first advent with the view of the second advent in mind. We are people who are waiting for our Savior to return. And oftentimes, we might act more like the religious rulers than the wise men. We look down the corridors of church history and see a long story of waiting and waiting and waiting. Maybe we sit down on our couches more often than we should. Not dealing, not, we, much like the Jewish leaders, we have even more scripture than they had. We have what we call an Old Testament and a New Testament. We have all these things, and so often we sit on it. We have the scriptures, but we've lost the anticipation. Turn with me to Luke 12. Jesus gives here a parable of sorts about the attitude that we need to be having as we wait for his second advent. Luke 12, verse 35, he says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks So you have your master away at a wedding feast. Weddings, especially back here, are long events, drawn out events. You never know how long they're going to be. The servant's job is to have everything ready for the master's arrival, to be ready for him when he comes to the door, to welcome him in, to, to meet whatever needs he might have. And Jesus is saying, this is the attitude we need to have as we are anticipating our Savior's second advent, his second coming. We need to be people who are anticipating it. We have scripture that tells us that he will come back. We have scripture that shows that he is faithful story after story after story of his faithfulness so that as his children, we can say, great is thy faithfulness. We know that he is coming. Jesus is saying, don't lose the anticipation. Be ready. Be a people who are prepared for him to come back. Verse 37 in Luke 12, he says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. (laughs) Truly I say to you, he, the master, will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. That's, when we look at parables, that's what you're supposed to look for. You're supposed to look for the jaw drop moment, like what? That's not how the story is supposed to go. The sp- story is supposed to go that the master comes back from the wedding feast at 4 a.m. And the servants have been ready all night. And the master comes in at 4 a.m. tired from partying. And the servants are ready to change his clothes, to give him fresh drink, to provide his meal for him. But here, the servant comes in, and f- or the master comes in and finds his servants ready and he goes to the coat closet and puts on his apron. And he has the servants sit down at the table and he feeds them. What amazing love. So you wonder as his people in waiting, why do we wait? Because we have a, a savior who has proven himself that he will serve us. He died on a cross, we have that beautiful picture of him putting on his apron and washing his disciples' feet. But that just leads to the, the beauty of him serving us by suffering and dying in our place on the cross. And that's the picture then of his second coming, is he is coming again. And that service doesn't stop. and is mind-blowing. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's the mystery and wonder of the gospel that our creator would come and bow down and serve us, his servants. So we ask ourselves, I ask me, myself as I've been preparing this and as I'm preaching it now and I ask you, are we people who have grown impatient in Christ, for Christ's coming? Are we a people who have kind of just grown apathetic to it are we people like the wise men? Are we a a people like these blessed servants in the parable that are eagerly waiting his coming, that are anticipating it, that find joy in searching the scriptures and seeing the beauty of the scriptures unfold before us, the faithfulness of God? Are we a people who are waiting, who are living lives that are waiting for our Savior to come back? As we move toward communion, I wanna let you know it's okay. If you have kind of grown a little apathetic, I would encourage you not to be. I would encourage you to rejoice exceedingly with great joy as we anticipate his coming. But we see this even in the early days of the church, through the letters that the apostles give to the church. Even then, the people were wondering, is he coming? Is he coming again? Peter writes in his second letter, chapter 3, says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. in which righteousness dwells. Are you waiting in that anticipation? Are you living like the blessed servants, living in righteousness and holiness, desiring to do the will of the Lord and and saying as, as the very end of scripture says as John in Revelation, come Lord Jesus, come. That should be your cry. I fail so often at having that as my cry. I get lost in the weeds of everyday life and I sometimes start living, sometimes, it's so often, it's so often. I live as if he's not coming. Scripture needs to speak to our hearts, much like the shock of Gentile Magi from the east coming to Jerusalem saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? That should have pricked the Jewish leaders' hearts. They should have gone down to Bethlehem to worship alongside the Magi, but they didn't. We have the totality of scripture that should be daily pricking our hearts so that we can rejoice to live lives of holiness and and righteousness, not to earn salvation, but because our Savior has so greatly served us and died in our place and has granted us salvation through his righteousness alone. That is what we need to do. That's what we need to live lives of anticipation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. As we are about to take communion together, we think to that parable in Luke 12 about the master coming and serving us. This is a, a picture of that. Remember, what does scripture tell us? That we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper until he comes again. It is that meal that we are looking forward to. It's a, it's, it's a picture of what we are looking forward to in the new heavens and the new earth where our master, the King of kings and Lord of lords will serve us and we will glorify him and worship him forever. If you believe that, even if you struggle as much as I do, and you waver, your faith is weak. But if you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead, you believe that he lived the life of righteousness that you and I could never live, that he died the death bearing sin on the cross, our sin, not his own, so that you could be the adopted children of God. If you believe that he rose from the dead, and we will be raised with him in the last day And he ascended on high and is sitting even now on the throne interceding for us. If you believe these things, even if it's a weak belief, enjoy this feast. Enjoy it because we have a faithful God. If you don't believe those things, just we ask that you don't partake in the In this supper, we don't want you to be confused. There are some traditions that that teach that this is part of those things that keep you safe, that keep you safe. We don't want you to be confused. Taking this does not save you. Faith in Jesus Christ is what saves us. Again, for all the rest, enjoy it. Worship and celebrate. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would help me and help this congregation, help your church as a whole, your bride. Help us to be faithful in anticipating your son's second advent. Help us to be a people who long for it, who desire his coming, who can say with John, come Lord Jesus, come. Help us with the wise men to rejoice exceedingly with great joy in anticipation of your son's second coming. Help us to remember that in all of our frailties and all of our sins and all of those things that discourage us and cause us to not live in, in anticipation that where we are weak, you are strong and you are faithful. And when we come before you with our many sins and confess them, you are faithful and just to forgive them, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we thank you for your word. We do say with John, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.